Welcome to Seahawks Man to Man podcast, powered by The Athletic. Shout out to the company. My name is Michael Sean Dugar. I'm here with my co-host, Christopher Kidd. Make sure you follow us both up on the Tweet Machine. You can follow me at Mike Dugar. That is M-I-K-E-D-U-G-A-R. I'm verified if you didn't catch all that, so just look for me next to the blue check. Chris, talk to him. What is up, everybody? It's your boy, Christopher Kidd. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at C-K-I-D-D-206, and that's C-Kidd-206. Chris, we haven't had a special guest on in a while. It feels good to, to bring another voice on to the show. Uh, we have a first-time guest. We have Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders. Aaron, what's good, man? How you doing? I'm doing uh, I'm doing pretty well, all things considered. Yeah, no, that's that's probably the answer for everyone. You know, all things considered, we're 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 hanging in there. And I want to first give a shout out to the uh, the football football outsiders almanac 2020. Man, I use that thing pretty much every day when I'm writing about the Seahawks. Like I'm embracing my inner nerd uh, when I just talk about football these days. Like I'm a sucker for DVOA and EPA and all these acronyms that like old school football fans probably have no idea what they mean. Um, and uh, the Almanac, you guys are you're donating a portion of every book sold uh, this year to benefit the United Way Worldwide COVID-19 Community Response and Recovery Fund. Uh, why did you decide to do that? Well, we wanted to do our part. I mean, obviously, look, the last few months have not been like any offseason any of us can remember. And we're lucky enough that our sport was able to go forward in the offseason like we usually do. And we were able to do this book like we usually do. And we wanted to do something to try to help people and, and you know, put a charitable element in the book this year because it's just that kind of year. I want to get right into things and discuss the origin of Football Outsiders because there's a lot of amazing information in there. How did it come to be what it is today? I mean, all the stuff that's in there is, um, is fascinating and it's kind of mind-blowing. So how did it all come to what it is? Yeah, it's kind of mind-blowing. This is our 16th preseason book. Wow. And I've now been doing this for 17 years. We launched Football Outsiders in 2003. So it's been going for a long time. And, I mean, you know, analytics have sort of exploded in football in just the last two to three years. So maybe people don't remember just how barren the landscape was um, 17 years ago. I mean, 17 years ago, most most, uh, you know, beat reporters didn't even really watch film, let alone know advanced stats. Now most beat reporters understand advanced stats and watch film. Like, uh, the way that football is covered, uh, has covered has come so far in 17 years. So, I mean, we've, we've, we've done a lot of the work. A lot of other folks have done a lot of good work. And, um, you know, hopefully people are watching the game in a new light. And hopefully teams are running themselves in a new light. Russell Wilson, when... Every time I think of Russ, I think of pretty much greatness and what he does on the field, off the field. But for some reason, he always falls short of that MVP, whether it's being considered. What will it take for Russ, you think, moving forward to actually get an opportunity to A, win MVP? I mean, he puts out numbers that are just ridiculous, but he doesn't get a nod. What would it take? Yeah, I'd have to think to other sports to think of a quarterback who similarly had so many seasons where he was like the number two or number three, uh, you know, an an athlete who had so many seasons where he was like the number two or number three guy, but never had a season where he was number one. 
I mean, it's hard to argue that there's a season where Russell Wilson should have won the MVP. I mean, I think there's a reasonable argument to be made for 2015 um, when Cam Newton won it. But obviously, Wilson was really good. And, you know, like Cam Newton, Wilson had was sort of take, you know, drawn back by the, his teammates and sort of overcame problems with his teammates to have a phenomenal season. But I've met a lot of people who feel that because Wilson wasn't very good in the first half of that season that he doesn't deserve that MVP. But um, Dan Faust is a guy who sort of was similar in the NFL who had a lot of seasons where he was like the number two or number three guy in the league, just never had a season where he was number one. But it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility that Wilson can still have a season where he's the number one guy in the league. It's just, it's been remarkable consistency to always be one of the top three, four, five quarterbacks year after year and just never be the top guy. It's almost like LeBron James. He's always top two, top three, best player in the NBA. But you do it so consistently, you don't need the MVP. Just win a Super Bowl or do something else. I mean, that's kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, luckily Russell got that out of the way early in his career because I would hate, I would hate if this guy had, um, you know, had the, the storyline and narrative attached like he couldn't win the big one if for some reason Seattle had never won one and here he was, you know, eight years into his career and had never won it. So I'm glad he got that out of the way early. Well, Braun, Braun at least does have MVPs. Uh, there was actually two comps that you when you mentioned that that came to mind. The first one was Kobe, who obviously does have one. But uh, one out of twenty years for how great of a player Kobe was, that that right. did feel but, a little but strange. Most years, Kobe. Most years, you would say Kobe Bryant was one of the top four or five best players in the NBA, and he only won one MVP. Yep, yep. The, and then the other comp that came to mind is Drew Brees. Drew Brees, who also does not have one, he's played like what thirty years of football. <laughs> uh, it, it feels like, although it does, it does feel yeah. like he's he's due to win one probably like this year with those those weapons uh, as he has. Um, when we have uh, when we have one of the friends of the show, Ben Baldwin, on, we we do like a kind of a MythBusters thing because he always comes up with some analytical way to look at a traditional stat and just piss people off, um, and I, I love it. And I want to ask you about this stat that tends to do that with Seattle folks is sacks being a quarterback stat, you know, more than just being on the O line. Like if Russ get, takes the most sacks, then he's got the worst O line in the league. Now whether that's been true some years, but uh, can you talk a little bit about how have you like come to the realization or the work that you've seen to recognize that the quarterback is more responsible for those sack numbers than we are like led to believe traditionally? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely a believer that both the quarterback and the offensive line play a role in sack rate and pressure rate, right? There's pressure rate also now that multiple companies are tracking pressure, and that's actually more accurate in some ways Back rate, like pressure rate, is more consistent from year to year and more predictable. Uh, but the quarterback plays a role in that too. The offensive line does play a role, and the scheme plays a role. But the quarterback plays a large role. And listen, if you want to know how I figured out that a quarterback played a role in sacks, we figured it out a long time ago. I think Football Outsiders, when we started in 2003, we were like the first people to ever count sacks really negatively for quarterbacks. Uh, specifically, and the reason why is Rob Johnson. Mm. Because if you look at the Buffalo Bills when Rob Johnson and Doug Flutie were the quarterbacks of that team, the difference in sack rate between Doug Flutie and Rob Johnson is, like, insane. And that was, like, the first time you, I really realized that, oh, my God, like, certain quarterbacks just cannot avoid sacks at all. Mm. And, Rob, you know, 
normally they're not. It's not stick figures like Rob Johnson who have that problem. It's actually mobile guys like Russell Wilson who have that problem because they're always trying to make something happen. So they, it's almost like they play their way into pressure, whereas a guy like Brady or Breeze will get rid of the ball before the pressure shows up. A guy like Russell Wilson or Deshaun Watson will always be trying to make something happen and trying to make something happen, so they'll kind of hold the ball into pressure. Well, so specifically with Russ, what role would you say? Because he's he's taken a lot of hits, he's taken a lot of sacks throughout his career. I think he led the league in sacks taken last year in 2019. What role would you say he's played in, like the perception or just the the number of sacks that he's taken? What would you say he's had in that, and what can he maybe do to to fix that part of his game? I mean, I mean, the the best way to fix that part of his game is to is to get rid of the ball sooner on some of these sort of scramble drill plays. Not hold on to it so long waiting for something to happen. Because there's a lot of times where Russell Wilson gets sacked late in the play, not early in the play. Mag and I have had this discussion a few times, pass rush versus coverage. When you look at the Seahawks' coverage prior to them making some acquisitions, the secondary was solid. The pass rush was not good enough. Based on last season's stats, they were, I believe, ranked probably in the bottom half, bottom of the league when it comes to getting to the quarterback. They do bring in Bruce Irvin and Benson Mayoa. How do you feel the Seahawks' pass rush is going into this season? And with that being said, does an elite player actually help the pass rush when it's all said and done? I mean, yeah. I mean, listen, it's... it's um they were dead last in pressure rate last year on defense. And they got and they lost their best pass rusher in Jadavian Clowney. So Irvin and Mayoa aren't going to make up for that. It's absolutely, like a, a dominating pass rusher makes a big difference. It's not – the question of which, which is more important, secondary or pass rush, doesn't mean that all – you know, if you believe secondary is more important than pass rush, it doesn't mean pass rush isn't important or that individual pass rushers aren't important. So this is a real problem for this year. I mean, this is the biggest problem with the team this year is going to be getting a pass rush because they're either going to have to count on their secondary forcing quarterbacks to hold the ball too long or they're going to have to manufacture it with blitzes. Do you see a possibility now that the Seahawks traded for Quentin Dunbar and Jamal Adams, do the stats illustrate that, A, having another elite corner and an elite safety can bolster this pass rush to a point where they are – efficient with it they are able to make and cause turnovers to a point where dang this pass rush is actually good although they didn't really go out and sign a big name they have a bunch of guys that are making plays it helps i mean adams is part of the pass rush himself if they use him the way that greg williams used him with the Jets, right he blitzed a lot and he had six and a half sacks and 16 hurries both of those led all nfl defensive backs and then in coverage he was very solid Dunbar has been very solid for a couple of years. So, I mean, I absolutely think it's going to improve. You know, the coverage should be good this year, but they're not, I don't think they're going to be like at the level of like what New England was last year or anything like that. So it's not, you know, the pass rush is still going to have to do some of the work itself. And they, and they definitely have a weakness. Aaron, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a new job here. It's a big, big, big promotion. I'm going to pretend that Pete Carroll here has, he calls you and says, hey, man, I want you to be my director of analytics for the Seattle Seahawks. You accept, boom, you're rich. How do you help Pete uh, embrace analytics to help his team 
on both sides of the ball. I mean, listen, the fact is they do have staffers in the front office who understand analytics, but a lot of the precepts of analytics are not making their way to Pete Carroll. And, like, I, you know, I have a lot of respect for Pete Carroll as a coach. There are a lot of things that go into coaching, like the ability to inspire your players, Mm -hmm. right? There's no analytics for that. But when it comes to certain things, I mean, I would absolutely just, they need to pass the play. You're going to hear me talk about let Russ cook, right? You guys. (laughs) The analytic people can't shut up about let Russ cook. Well, I mean, the first thing is let Russ cook. Don't run the ball so much. And the second is he's got to go for it more often on fourth downs. Speaking, by the way, of times when it's good to run the ball, like fourth and one and fourth and two, when the run actually converts more than the pass. Like they need to be more aggressive on fourth downs. I, I enjoy the let Russ cook discussion, although I selfishly would like it if it was hashtag establish the Russ, because that's the one I use most often. And, <laughs> and and I feel like, I mean, obviously you got the establish Russ, establish the run, and then because the way I look at the whole let Russ cook thing is it's not necessarily, I mean, they should throw more. I think the game script itself just could use like kind of being turned upside down, like starting off the game, like, hey, let's get our quarterback going. And we can just run the ball when we're up 30 or whatever. Um, kind of how do you look at like that part of my trip in there? Like that is maybe more about the game script than the maybe number of volume in terms of the runs versus pass play calls? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, if, if they're winning, then they should be running the ball, right? I mean, that's, you know, we know that running salt solidifies, you know, salts away the clock. And uh, if you're winning the game, you want to be running more. But yeah, early in games, like for example, in the first half of games last year, they were third in the league in run-pass ratio, and it really should be. They really should be running less than that, and they should be passing more, and they should be, you know, sending their guys downfield and gaining yardage that way. It's just a more efficient way to gain yardage. Even when you have a good back like Chris Carson, it's just a more efficient way to gain yardage. You mentioned going forward on fourth down, and Mike have Mike and I have built a a huge distinction between hashtag never kick and hashtag just kick it, which means I am on the side of saying take the points because you going for it on fourth down in the red zone doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up scoring a touchdown. It could mean you get another four downs and you still don't get in the end zone and you have to settle for the three regardless. My question to you is, is there a benefit in actually just taking the points as when it comes down to the end of the game, it's all about who has a, the most points to win it. Am I wrong here for saying just take the points, especially when you get down the red zone and your offense has been struggling per se? Well, you know, listen, a lot of things go into the decision that you make. If your offense has been struggling, if the other defense is good, what's the down and distance? There's a big difference between you should be going for it on fourth and two and then you should be going for it on fourth and ten, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fourth and ten, kick the field goal. Fourth and two, go for it. As far as, you know, sometimes we're telling teams to go for it and they go for it and then still don't score the touchdown. Well, it's still, they're getting an easier field goal. I mean, don't forget it's easier to kick a field goal from 25 than it is from 45. From 45, there's a chance you're going to miss. From 25, it's rare that you're going to miss. So you also want to get into position for easier field goals. Plus, you have the opportunity for the touchdown. Plus, you have the fact that if you fail to get a touchdown from like the four or five, Here's part of the reason why analytics people are so avid for going for it for touchdowns rather than field goals, right? This is a different issue than the punting issue. This is about field goals. Mm -hmm. Because you pin the other team deep 
if you fail. So even if you fail, let's say you're inside the 10, right? Mm -hmm. And you fail on fourth down. The other team is pinned deep. So even if you're giving the ball back to the other team, you are still more likely to score the next point. Mm. So there's value in forcing the other team to take the ball back into their own end zone, even if you fail. Ah. And that's a big part of the decision-making when it comes to touchdown or field goal when you get close to the goal line. Well, you made Mike very happy. Well, that's well, <laughs> I mean, that's what I when I when I read about like EPA and win probability, two very important stats that I, I enjoy like learning more about EPA being expected points added. Like the points that you're gonna like add by like when you have an efficient offense, like so when you have someone like Russell Wilson going for it makes more sense, uh, I think, because it increases your win. The way it can increase your win probability and then the points that you're adding by like successfully getting uh, a fourth down conversion is greater, right, than the whatever field goal your kicker might make. Because Aaron, I tell Chris all the time, you're not taking the points; you're going for the points. True, kickers miss. Right, there's no, there's right, no guarantee. Yeah, there's no guarantee there. And then, like Aaron's saying, if we go for it and we don't get it, they gotta go 87 yards maybe to score. Like Aaron's saying, yeah, we we're more likely now to actually score the next points because it's just because of how hard it is to go the length of the right. field. Go ahead, thinking Aaron. Thinking about good points added, when you are behind your own 20, you have negative expected points added. Mm. Right, the other team is more likely to have the next score. So even if you fail to convert a fourth down near the goal line, you're putting the other team into a negative expected points added situation. Obviously, you don't want to fail. You want to succeed. Right. But that's the other part of this equation. Teams succeed on fourth down more than coaches tend to realize. Coaches tend to think about the negative of what happens if they fail rather than realizing just how often, especially in the current NFL, when offensive success rate is higher than it's ever been how often teams succeed on fourth down i love it that was a big big version of just saying never kick chris i'm <laughs> glad you peeped that without me even having to jump in you peeped that right right away uh let's talk about kickers for a second because i'm a big proponent of hashtag never kick uh that one's actually sticking i established the rust didn't stick but that's okay i'm not bitter uh, kicker Talk to me about kicker accuracy and just how like how like stable that is from year to year. Like, is a Pro Bowl kicker more likely to be like a Pro Bowler from year to year, or like is that more like an unstable thing over time? Totally unstable. Mm. And we've been researching this. I wrote about this first for the New York Times in 2006. Mm. Totally unstable. There is there almost none, no stability to field goal percentage for kickers from year to year. Part of it is the sample size is so small. Like, it's one thing if you were to track a kicker in practice for a whole year and you had, like, 500 kicks to go on, then maybe that would be consistent from year to year. I don't know because I don't have those numbers. But when you're only talking about 30 to 35 attempts for your average NFL kicker, there's just going to be massive inconsistency from year to year. The kickoff distance is much more consistent from year to year. So I've always been in favor of, of, of getting a kicker who you know can nail kickoffs, as long as they're not horrible. Like some guys just can't kick field goals. They're just not good enough to kick field goals in the NFL. You can't have one of those guys. But as long as they're a reasonable field goal kicker, what you want is the consistency of being able to boom kickoffs, except that now that they've 
changed all the kickoff rules over the last few years. That's so much less important than it used to be. Now kickers are all just basically replaceable. The, the biggest difference now between kickers is who has a strong enough leg that you can put them out there to kick a 54-yard field goal if you have a 4th and 15 or something where you don't want to go for it, right? Like a Justin Tucker or something, mm-hmm. right? Like otherwise, they're all basically interchangeable. Man, that's I mean, because I know um, what really got me into this, I, I think uh, it was a lot of people cr- critical, I think, in the analytics community about um, the Seahawks paying Jason Myers like a four-year deal with like $15 million yeah. because he had just come off a Pro Bowl season. And the, uh, there was a bunch of numbers that gone into like there's it's really unlikely that he just replicates that in Seattle. And I think he made like 91% of his kicks as a Pro Bowler and then dropped to like 82 <laughs> in, in Seattle. It's like a good illustration of, uh, of what you're talking about, wouldn't that be? Yeah, here's the way I normally put it. There's like 40 guys in America who are good enough to be NFL kickers, okay? But they're all kind of interchangeable. Mm. But the thing is, 32 of them have jobs at any one time, and five or six of them are free agents, and two or three of them are in college. <laughs> so in college, there's a huge difference between guys who can kick and guys who can't. Oh, yeah. But in the NFL, but in the NFL, basically, if you're good enough to kick in the NFL, it's from year to year, there's no predictability as who's going to be the best. Tucker, Tucker is sort of an exception. Um, you know, there's another thing. We're just going to debunk every Pete Carroll thing right here. Not debunk, <laughs> but this is going to be fun. Uh, so Pete Carroll, you know, is big about the ball. It's all about the ball. He loves forcing turnovers. He believes in turnover margin. He swears by it. It's one of, like, the three stats, like, he'll he'll go to bat for and die for. Um, but turnovers, uh, like, the, the turnovers that a defense is forced is uh, year to year. If I have this right, that's not very, like, stable year to year, is that? No, it's not It's not very stable year to year, but it's not, like, totally random either. Okay. Right? There is something to the idea that some teams force more fumbles. Mm-hmm. What's really random is recovering fumbles. Ah, okay. That makes sense. And the other thing is interceptions. There's something to the idea that teams defense more passes, but interceptions as a percentage of passes defensed are very random. Hmm. See, I like this But stuff, some Chris. teams get their hands on the ball more. They defense more passes. You know, turning, right, turning those into interceptions, there's, some, there's, there's a, a good amount of randomness into. into but, but, but it's not like totally random. Like, like there's, there's no consistency whatsoever. There is some consistency. No, that, that makes sense. You teach guys technique or you're, you, know, you're, you teach a certain technique or you have a certain philosophy or you just always have big-ass corners and you know, you're going you know, get to your, get your hands on the ball. No, that, that makes sense uh, as well. There's a, probably, perhaps one of the biggest Pete-isms that everyone knows is you can't win a game in the first quarter, can't win a game, you know. Can you win in the third quarter? Yeah, can you win that. in the fourth quarter? Yeah! Yeah, and then he, you know, he believes that there's like a clutch gene almost that like he can like coach into his team that makes them better equipped to win close games. Uh, like wh- where, where is analytics, maybe not you specifically, but where's the analytics in general on like this, this like qu- clutchness being like something that's like quantifiable. All right. I know it's tough times for a lot of folks out there, but if you want to save a little bit of cash, $50 is more affordable than any other cable providers. With the NFL season around the corner, FUBU.TV will not disappoint. Stay updated on your favorite teams as well as local broadcast news. So go to FUBU.TV 
backslash athletic today and get 15% off your first month. You won't regret it. That's fubu.tv backslash athletic. Start your first month today. I think that analytics in general would say that that there isn't such a thing as certain players that are better in the clutch. Mm. It's tough. It's complicated in football because unlike this same argument in baseball, being clutch in football also involves management of the clock. Right. It's not just we're not just trying to measure some kind of magical clutch gene. You also have the fact that the possibility that certain players manage the clock better than other players. Right? But I think in general, like certain guys who are better in the fourth quarter don't that doesn't necessarily carry over from year to year. It's hard to find it's hard to find signal in that. Um, but what, what is true is that clutchness exists in the past. So, like, for example, I have no problem with the idea of using clutchness as part of an argument for a Hall of Fame mm. argument, right? Because clutchness absolutely exists in the past, but it's hard to find the signal that shows that it exists into the future. Mm. Usually the best quarterbacks in the fourth quarter are just the guys who are the best quarterbacks. Russell Wilson is one of the best quarterbacks in the fourth quarter because he's just one of the best quarterbacks, period. That's it. I was going to ask about Russ because that's one of the huge, like, you know, big, like, uh, things that people big up about Russell is that, you know, he is clutch. I think he led the league last year in, like, fourth quarter comebacks. And so his whole career, he's considered to be very, very clutch. And, yeah, in the past, he has been. But uh, so how would you view him? So is it actually you kind of already answered? Is it as simple as just like Russ's fourth quarter numbers are off the charts and and things like that just because Russ is good? I mean, I have what I have in front of me are last year's, just last year's numbers, and then what we call late and close situations, which is any time in the second half with the score within a touchdown. Uh, the Seattle offense was fourth in the league. So that's really good. But I think in general, it, it's, it comes down to if you look at the best quarterbacks in the fourth quarter over time, it's going to be Patrick Mahomes, Drew Brees, Russell Wilson. It's going to be the guys that were already the best quarterback in general. Right, and all the, yeah, they're just good at all the other stuff. So, of course, they'll be good in the fourth. Like, you won't see Blake Bortles just randomly pop in or Mitch Trubisky just, <laughs> just pop into the, the fourth fourth quarter QBR stuff. No, that that makes sense, Right, there's nobody, there's nobody, like, there aren't any bad quarterbacks who were like, oh, but they've got this great, you know, fourth quarter ability. I mean, the, the closest thing is that Nick Bowles has had two nice postseasons, <laughs> which is a different kind of clutchness. Right, but other than that, like there isn't anybody who you're like, well, that's a journeyman quarterback. But boy, in the fourth quarter, let a rip. <laughs> <laughs> right, and even then, like teams are not necessarily signing up to pay Nick. The Jaguars did it for like all the wrong reasons, uh, and eventually they realize, hey, this Minshew, we're uh, we're Wazoo grads, Aaron. So yeah, we're all in on the Minshew thing. Uh, so I'm glad I'm glad the Jags came to their came to their senses there. It also sounds like the the Ravens could have used you used football outsiders in 2000 whatever when they paid Joe Flacco because he proved to be like super clutch for like a month <laughs> yeah I mean Flacco is a great example of a guy who just he had a postseason that was better than his regular any regular season performance he'd ever had a four game stretch he'd never had a four game stretch like that and like when you like look at his his career and you look at his you know 
the storyline of his career. Like that absolutely matters that he did that. But when you try to predict what he's going to do in the future, you, you can't predict that, that he's going to take that into the future. And yeah. so, you know, I, yeah, I wouldn't have paid him that money and, and Baltimore paid for it. But now Baltimore is the, they're the darlings of the analytics movement. So uh, they're definitely on our side now. Yeah, no, that um that clip um of Lamar Jackson and in Seattle actually uh was like fourth and eight, you know, telling John Harbaugh like, yeah, coach, let's let's go for it, and like that was that was super ballsy, and it, it obviously it worked. Not only did they get the you want to talk about never kick, not only did they get the first down, they scored a touchdown on a run play on on fourth and eight, and like, yeah, would you say the the Ravens are like the most like analytically inclined team? Is it is it them or is it maybe like the Eagles or somebody? Right now, I would say it's probably the Ravens because of the fact that it's clear that the coach has bought in. Mm -hmm. I think Cleveland uses a lot of analytics in the front office, and certainly Stefanski's belief in analytics was part of bringing him in this year. But we'll have to see sort of like I, I haven't seen what Stefanski really looks like as head coach to be able to say, oh, you know, Cleveland is the most analytically oriented franchise. With Baltimore, you know that Harbaugh has bought in, and they've done a lot of things in the past from their use of um, from their use of uh, uh, sorry, what do you call the, the draft picks that you get when free agents? Oh, sign compensatory picks, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm blanking right now on what those are called, um, but from that to uh, you know, Harbaugh's always been very forward thinking on fourth down, but last year he was the most forward thinking on fourth down that we've ever seen, right? He went forward on fourth downs at like roughly four times what an average coach would have done in the same situations over the last 20 years. So Baltimore's definitely, and it's interesting that they're the most analytically oriented franchise because one of the things that analytics definitely teaches is pass more often and run less. But when you have a running game that is so efficient, and in particular when you use your quarterback in the running game to create uh you know, the question of who has the ball and to make it difficult to follow who has the ball and you yards that way and are more efficient, you can run the ball. And so Baltimore is this run-first offense that is so efficient that that actually makes sense analytically. When you we were talking about Stefanski from the Browns, their new head coach, and you were saying, I don't know what he looks like, dot, dot, dot. I thought you were, like, talk, at first going to say, like, physically, you have no idea what he looks like, because I don't either. <laughs> I had to, <laughs> I had to Google him just now. So I feel I have a good picture of John Harbaugh in my head. But I don't know what Kevin. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, now I know what Kevin Stefanski looks like. I just very handsome cat. I can see why he got the gig. Uh, one, one, one more on the uh, kind of stable, unstable, predictable, unpredictable is um, the number of sacks that whether a whole D line gets or maybe an individual player gets from year to year. Like how predictive is 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 just the the tax? The, excuse me. The the stat the sack total number. Like how predictive is that? It's, it's somewhat predictive, but here's the deal. Pressures are more predictive than sacks. Mm. Now, pressures can be measured in a number of different ways, right? There is no official pressure stat. Different companies keep different pressure stats. Sport Radar has their number, and Sports Info Solutions has their number, and Pro Football Focus has their number. But any of those numbers that you use predict sacks in the future better than sacks in the past. So pressures are more consistent than sacks. Pressures turn into sacks not ra randomly is not quite the right word, but like, you know, a, a, a player who turns a lot of their pressures into sacks, the following year will probably turn just an average number of pressures into sacks. So you want to get those pressures 
Um, that's that's the more consistent stat. I think you might be onto something because I look. I'm looking at Aaron Donald's stats when he had 20 and a half sacks. His next season, he had 12 and a half sacks, which kind of leads to your point. His pressures were probably through the roof last season, mm-hmm. based on that. Which is, I wonder how he's going to do this season. Yeah. <laughs> Donald has like the same, roughly the same number of pressures every year, but his sacks go up and down. Right? You're not going to have 20 and a half sacks two straight years. Right. No, that that that, that makes, makes sense. sense. I yeah. think the Seahawks. Um, I don't know if other teams make this information available. I'm pretty sure that they count a pressure as the you got the quarterback off his spot. Like that's I don't know how uh, other sites. Right, you do can it. define it in different ways, and you can also some some companies are are just counting hurries. Mm-hmm. Right, some some numbers are just counting hurries, and others combine that with hit. Like when you knock the quarterback to the ground after the pass, that that counts as a pressure. Personally, I don't like that because sometimes you're not really pressuring the quarterback when you knock him to the ground after the pass. Like, he didn't notice you were there and you just got to him after the pass. Right. But, like, some companies, like, what they call hit plus hurries plus that. But Clowney, to give an example, Clowney had 41 hurries last year by mm. Sports Info Solutions' account. He only had three sacks. Okay. Almost always, 41 hurries is going to lead to more than three sacks. That was abnormally low, and it was not a sign that he was over or something. It was just a, a fluky year where he only had three sacks. Well, I was going to ask about Clowney. So before I get to my other question about him, you said 41 hurries would usually produce more than three sacks. What would that usually produce? Like, what would a, If you just tell me, oh, a guy had 41 hurries, how many sacks would you think that he had that year? So there's an easy ratio that I don't remember what it is. Probably like eight or nine. Probably like eight or nine. So like compare that to Irvin, right? Bruce Irvin with uh, where was he last year? Atlanta. He was a uh, Carolina. Uh, he was in Carolina last year. Bruce Irvin had 23 hurries and okay. eight and a half sacks. Mm. Wow. That's and that's... Clowney had 41 hurries but only three sacks. So you you would expect their sack numbers to switch this year, which is not a good sign for Seattle. Yeah, that was going to be my other question about Clowney. What is where did with what we know about pressures and sacks and how much Clowney was asking for and what Seattle like ultimately spent on Bruce, which I think was five and a half million, and Benson Mayo, which is like three, it was three million. Three, yeah. What they ultimately spent on the pass rush with the with the numbers analytically say Seattle should have paid Clowney or that any team should have paid Clowney for what that's worth. I don't know. I'd have to do a closer analysis to figure out sort of what he was asking for versus what they paid other guys. But I mean, I, I think I think that they would have been better off with Clowney rather than having Irvin and Mayoa. But mm. there is an argument for having more players because one of the things about defense is that de- one reason why defense is less consistent from year to year than offense is is that depth matters more on defense. You can hide your holes on offense, not really on the offensive line, but like. If you have a hole in a skill position, you can kind of hide that. You just don't throw to that guy as much. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can't hide a hole on defense, right? So the depth matters more. So that's an argument for having two guys instead of one, even if neither of those guys is as good as Clowney. But I don't like. I don't remember right now like how much cap space Seattle has. Like, could they have signed Mayola and Clowney, or May or Irvin and Clowney? Like, I don't know exactly how much cap space they have left. But I, I'm shocked that Clowney is still a free agent. Like, it blows my mind that nobody is signing him. Although the other really good guy was Everson Griffin, and he finally did get signed by Dallas. 
sounds like the Seahawks took some analytics and said, well, we're going to go with bolstering up our secondary and we'll get these two guys who could possibly have a breakout year in the pass rush based on some of the hurry on their hurries. Hmm, this this might this is going to be an interesting year for the Seahawks defense to see what they actually do based on what we've read on analytics and what we've seen from previous seasons of Benson Mayoa and Bruce Irvin and Jadavion well, Clowney. Irvin and Mayoa had more sacks than their hurries would suggest last year, right? Irvin yep. had 23 hurries with eight, eight and a half sacks. Yeah. And Mayoa had 18 with seven sacks. Normally you would only expect like five or six sacks from each of those guys given the number of hurries. So um, I don't think that was the – but, you know, the angle may have been more is better. It's better to have more players and more depth than to have one superstar who might get hurt. Mm. That might have been – or, you know, or who can get double teamed. Maybe that was part of the thought. And part of the thought might have been it's better to have good coverage than it is to have uh, to have better pass rush, or it's better to have a chess piece, right, like Adams, who you can move into a lot of different places, than it is to have a guy like Clowney who, you know, he plays on the edge and that's what he does, although it's hard to call him it's hard to call him one dimensional because he's really strong against the run too. He's yeah. not just a pass rusher. True. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of where it was. speaking of Jamal, I, I I don't know if I was a GM and I would have pulled the trigger on the two first rounders and a third rounder for uh, you know a safety. I probably would not have done that. But if the Seahawks, I don't know if this is their thinking. I doubt it is. But if they're thinking, all right, we're gonna go cheap up front on the line. We got our we got the best linebackers in the league. We'll, we'll roll with that and then say, hey, we got Dunbar, we got Shaquille Griffin off a of Pro Bowl, we got Jamal Adams, we got Quandre. Let's invest in this coverage versus pass rush thing if that was their thinking i'm very interested i don't even know if that's gonna work but i'm very interested to see if that does work because i do like that idea maybe just because i'm like when i play football like playing db because i'm small (laughs) i just like the idea of like man maybe the the coverage part is more important even if pass rush is is not like totally irrelevant uh, of course are you do you kind of lean aaron on more that the coverage is the more important of the two like elements to build a good pass defense I've seen the research that shows that, you know, certainly suggests that that's the case. And I, I don't know if I would say that I've made my, my, you know, I've made my decision as far as what I think, but I understand the research that shows that's the case. I think, I think all the positions on the defense, uh, you know, uh, run stopping defensive tackles are not quite as important. Off ball linebackers are not quite as important, but, um, you know, I think both pass rush and pass coverage are important. I mean, my opinion about the Adams trade is what I think a lot of analytic people feel about the Adams trade, which is that it's not that the player doesn't make sense. It's that it doesn't make sense to trade that much draft capital and make him the highest paid player at his position, which apparently they're not doing yet. They're going to get away with a year of him on his rookie contract. And then I guess give him an extension after the season. Mm-hmm. So that makes it a little bit more palatable. But the idea is, is, you know, you can pay a guy what he's worth or you can give up draft capital for him. But you don't want to both give up draft capital for him and pay him what he's worth. Yeah. No, that that, that is the dilemma teams face every year. We've seen them do it. The, C- uh, the Chiefs did it with Frank Clark last year. Traded for him and paid him. Then they won the Super Bowl. But <laughs> I don't know if they won the Super Bowl because they, they had Frank. Maybe just because they had this guy named Patrick. Patrick yeah, maybe that, that might have had something yeah. to, to, to do with that was it. More, that was more related to Mahomes. But, yeah. you know, Frank Clark, he, he got better as the year went along. 
early on when you'd watch the Chiefs, you'd like, you know, uh, he's not really bouncing off the screen here. Like, what's going on? But as the year went along, he was better. Um, there's a we we do the like the you drop off uh, in terms of performance at age thirty thing with just about every position with uh, maybe except for some linemen and quarterbacks obviously maybe kickers too they can kick to their fifty. Uh, wh- why is thirty become the, the threshold? And are there some positions where it's like the the drop off is steeper or it's more like gradual? I mean we give up on running backs at age twenty one it feels like. But like I'm looking at like a guy like Bobby Wagner or a KJ Wright. Um, even the Seahawks have like Dwayne Brown. There's some important pieces that are either thirty or older. Is it should the Seahawks be expecting that they they fall off right away, or that it's something it's something gradual? Like how what how should we look at these certain positions? Like just right when they turn like thirty. You know, I can't tell you that I've ever looked at defensive age curves uh, recently. Certainly, I mean, I have looked at them way in the past, and then you know, it's roughly like what you're saying. But I haven't looked at like whether certain positions decline faster than other positions. So I don't really have an answer to that question, but certainly there are some off-ball linebackers who played well into their late 30s because they were so, you know, they weren't necessarily as good as they were earlier in their careers, but they were good enough to matter, like a Junior Seau or Thomas Davis. So I don't think like Bobby Wagner's falling off a cliff anytime soon. Like his next five years may not be as good as his last five years, but there's certainly, I mean, you could certainly find historical precedent for linebackers who aged slowly. We're about two weeks away from the NFL season kicking off, and I looked at your guys' playoff odds, and I know it's really early, and the Seahawks right now are fifth at 4.4% to win the Super Bowl. Of course, the Saints are number one at around 15%. How much of this will change as the season progresses, and are the Seahawks going to move up, especially if this defense is what everyone expects it to be? The pass rush is improved. Jamal Adams is back to making plays. And then with Baltimore, how much would they drop off now that Earl Thomas has been released? Oh, I mean, this will change. Once the season starts, this changes a lot, mm-hmm. right? It's right between now and opening day, it won't change very much. This uh, simulation that's on the front page of footballoutsiders.com right now does not account for Earl Thomas being cut, right? Mm, So the Ravens will drop a little bit. This is a new simulation that's more new than the book that does account for the Jamal Adams trade. So Seattle did move up a little bit. Once we get into the season, we get much more information about the teams actually are. Plus you get actual wins and losses, which like, you know, severely change teams' odds of winning the Super Bowl, how many actual wins and losses they have and which which playoff spots they're going to get. So this will change a lot once we get into the season. But it's not going to change much between now and the beginning of the season. So, yeah, we have Seattle higher than I think anybody else in the analytics world. Mm. And it's because while they were lucky last year to win a lot of close games, they also played a very difficult schedule. They played the second-hardest schedule in the league by our numbers. Mm. And they're likelier to be better this year, partly because of the Jamal Adams trade. So between, like, we feel they were actually better than their underlying stats last year, and then they added talent. We have Seattle as the top team in the NFC West, and we have them as one of the top teams in the league, with the understanding that if you look on our site, you'll see, and if you look in Football Outsiders Almanac, you'll see this too, we have a big gap between the top three teams and everybody else as far as, far as the probability goes. We have New Orleans, Kansas City, and Baltimore well ahead of the rest of the league. 
Yeah, I mean, that is that's fascinating stat there. And then I got to hit you with this one just because what is your prediction for the 2021 Super Bowl? Who do you think is going to represent the AFC and who you think is going to represent the NFC? I mean, because we have these teams so far ahead of everybody else, it's hard for me not to go with shock of what our numbers say, mm-hmm. which is New Orleans, Kansas City. Wow. That would be a fun Super Bowl. Hold on, we got to give us a winner, Aaron. You got to so let us hang in there for a second. We need a winner. <laughs> New Orleans has been so good the last three years, consistent and balanced between offense and defense, and just has lost in the playoffs on like the weirdest stuff. Like they outplayed Minnesota last year based mm. on the play-by-play, but lost. And then in in overtime, and then of course like the Stephon Diggs Minnesota miracle and the and the the pass interference with the Rams. Like they've lost on the on these ridiculous plays, but it doesn't take away from how good they've been in the regular season. And they fixed their biggest hole this year by getting Emmanuel Sanders to play opposite Michael Tom. No, I've, I've said on this show for, for a while, uh, this off season, the saints have had a super bowl roster for about four years, right? <laughs> like maybe longer. They just, yeah, their, their playoff luck is terrible. It's absolutely terrible down there. I mean, Seahawks fans will be happy to hear that they're like the f- they have the fifth best odds right now according to footballoutsiders.com. Uh, I wouldn't even call that chalk, Aaron. You guys do so much. This is why I'm gonna brag about the uh, football outsiders real quick before we let uh, Aaron go. Context is so important when we use stats. Like just something as simple as yards per attempt or yards per carry or receiving numbers. All these counting stats that we're so used to swearing by, whether it's us or fans or media or even coaches or general managers, they all require context, right? Like if all somebody's runs come on like third and 18, but he's picking up nine yards each time, but your team's punting right after, yeah, he averages nine yards a pop, but he doesn't impact the game at all. You know, like stuff, It's because you need that context. I think that, you know, EPA provides that, DVOA provides that, um, there's so many ways to provide context. You know, anytime you see a, a stat that says adjusted in front of it, usually is a good a good uh, example of it. So, Aaron, continue to do the good work you guys are doing. I love the context uh, you, you guys provide at footballoutsiders.com. I swear by the site. I use it all the time. Um, I love it. It makes me feel smarter. Whenever I say DVOA in an article or in an argument, people always look at me crazy. Not an article, but an argument for sure. Like, I'm going to challenge everybody listening right now. You arguing with somebody at work about who's, like, the top five QBs? Just drop, like, DVOA in the convo out of nowhere. <laughs> Over. <laughs> they, just, uh, they, just start, they just start looking at you crazy. Um, but that's uh, Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders. Just dropped the uh, – well, not just dropped, but has the Football Outsiders Almanac for 2020. Uh, super, super dope. Like I said, I've been using it, making me feel smarter. Um Scroll back up for that for me, Chris. A, por- a, p- a portion of the proceeds uh, for the book uh, go to United Way Worldwide COVID-19 Community Response and Recovery Fund. Uh, really glad you guys are doing that over there, Aaron. Thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on. And just a reminder for folks, you can get the electronic version of the book at footballoutsiders.com. You can get the printed version of the book at amazon.com, over 500 pages of season preview. So I hope some folks that are listening will go out and get it feels like smarter fan when the season starts and here's to having a here's to having a season that goes all 16 games because at least it looks good good like we're going to get the season started now oh, now yeah. we just have to hope to get the season finished 
Yeah, I just, I just before I came over to Chris's house to do the show, I got a COVID test, so I feel, feel, feel good about it. Uh, we thank you guys so much for listening to the Seahawks Man to Man podcast. Make sure you guys rate and review, subscribe, both on the Athletic, Spotify, iTunes, or Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. We appreciate the love. Fingers crossed for a season. Go get the football outsiders almanac. We'll see you next time. Peace. Maybe you should smoke some and try the marijuana. I was never you good. The vibe was straight, shows you a couple of